John chapter 6, first 21 verses. Jesus is feeding the 5,000. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went upon the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it reminds us a little bit of summertime in the park, doesn't it, with fellowship picnics, a little bit. We're looking forward to those days again. Well, you know, if I would pick a prayer right now to pray over this word, it would be this. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me. As thou didst break the loaves beside the sea. Beyond the sacred page, I see thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. Let me just pray that prayer. Father, let us see beyond the page, the sacred page today. As you break the bread of life to us through your word, may we see the Lord and may we be satisfied with what you show us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, of all the miracles, I've called it the Christ of miracles, by the way. Um, I've got four points to this message. Uh, hopefully I can stay on the four points. Loaves and fishes, the meaning of miracle, a sacramental ingredient, and the return journey. 
When we look at the, um, this account of, I've been one time actually to the Holy Land, to Israel, and been to Galilee. It's a bit like the inland lakes you have here. Uh, it's really can be like a sea, you know, when a storm blows up and get this picture of coastland around it and um, fishing boats, uh, green areas where it comes down to the shore and makes a natural amphitheater, a natural theater for speaking in some places where when the wind is in the right direction, you don't need a microphone, you see. You get a big crowd and you can speak to them. Uh, and the wind carries the... And you can imagine Jesus, you know, in these, here in the Gospels, uh, when he's speaking in the open air, the wind carrying his word to the people. And so it's quite an exciting thing to see. Uh, you know, of course, it's got a little bit um, touristy now where they put the signpost, you know, see where Peter walked on the water, and you can see where they put some stones in the water, see where... Peter actually, for a moment, walked on the water. Things like that. I think these texts become a little bit more um, vivid in your minds when you've seen with your eyes uh, something of the, you know, the area. But all the recorded uh, miracles in the gospel, this is the only one recorded by all four gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, as is the, the account of the death and resurrection of Christ recorded in all four of the gospel writers. So there are many other things there in each of the gospels from the different writers' perspective, but this miracle is recorded in all four. Um, of all the great works that he did, this was probably the most public in terms of the numbers of witnesses. I mean, 5,000. Doesn't mention women and children. But if it's anything, because he only says men. So if we assume that a large number of those brought their wives and maybe tagging along some of the kids as well, the family with them, that would make quite a crowd, wouldn't it? And so um, building on what we heard last time, about the two or three witnesses, evidence or proof of any claim. Uh, we often read in John's Gospel that John was very particular about wanting to bring the evidence to, uh, to confirm the identity of Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, uh, very clearly. Uh, of, of all the, the works that he did... I mean, John says that if he'd written them down, if all uh, wrote the book, the world wouldn't contain the books. So these are written that we might believe that Christ is the Son of God. He is divine. He is God in a body. This is what John was very clearly wanting to show in the gospel, his own gospel. Jesus had already admitted that in a matter two or three uh, a, a fact could be established in Deuteronomy 19. So this deity and saving work of Christ and his relationship to God as his father, as he claimed, 
were considered startling and far-reaching claims. John the Baptist, we heard last week, had been a witness and a shining light, pointing to the one who would come after him, greater than I, for he was before I existed. He, before I was, he existed. So John had been a witness to him, and even Christ, you know, in, in, uh, in his time here, actually appeals to his own works when he sends message to John on the basis of what he's doing. Don't forget that John had been uh, executed, beheaded by Herod because of Herodias' uh, request. And so John has already departed. Now, of course, John was um, a messenger sent from God, a man sent from God, but he was also Jesus' cousin. And this is round about the time that Jesus is actually going across the lake here to be alone. It's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Round about this time is when John has been executed. So it stands to reason, I think, that, you know, though he was God, yet Jesus was a man too. Fully human and fully God, and therefore would have felt all that we feel, uh, would have felt the loss of a cousin, not only of a messenger, probably the greatest, he claimed the greatest that had ever been born of women. Uh, and so you, you can imagine that he would want to be alone and go into the hillside, talk to his father, pour out his heart, uh, as a human father help me you know this is very painful and suffered grief the Bible says he is acquainted with grief so all of the issues of humanity the testings that mankind has uh, the sickness the fears the bereavements the struggles, the emotional problems that we have. He's aware of them and was aware of them. And I guess we, we, we often talk about this crowd in this account, this great number of people, but think about the permutations of issues, of the, the problems, of the human conditions uh, that came on that day which is why they were following him. Yes, they followed him because they saw signs, but I'm sure they followed him because they had need to. Remember, Jesus sent the message back to John through two envoys. It's recorded in Luke 7.22 and Matthew 11.4. Go and tell John. When John, in his uh, weakness... His depression, maybe, maybe even his, his unbelief. But he sent a message, said, are you truly the one? Or are we both prophets? Are we actually pointing to another? And Jesus sent the message back. Go and tell John the things that you see me doing. The sick are being healed. 
Devils are being cast out. The dead are being raised. The blind are seeing. Go and encourage John and tell him. So he, he appeals to his own witness of his works that his father is giving him to send to John. That's a great, a great account, I, I feel. That would have been a wonderful encouragement uh, when John was alive uh, before his execution that, that Jesus truly was the one. So these facts, like the four times repeated account of the crucifixion and resurrection we've mentioned, are enough to show that this multiplication miracle demands some attention then. Of course, the context of it, we can't get into all of that today, but John chapter 6, uh, the bread from heaven, the, uh, the, compare, the manner, comparing the manner, thinking of the Passover, don't forget in verse 4, it says the feast of the Passover was near. This probably would have been in Jesus' mind, thinking about his fellowship with his own father who, in the mystery of the Trinity, the great deliverance of the people of Israel from the bondage of Egypt, how in a mighty way, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Jewish people, the God of the Hebrews had demonstrated his might and his power when he dealt with the idols of Egypt in the plagues manifested through his servant Moses by great signs and wonders to demonstrate to the idol gods that he was the one true God. And, you know, you can't help thinking that Jesus had been in the fellowship of the Trinity and Father had been speaking about these things to him. It's the time of the Passover. Deliverance from slavery. The great message of the eternal manna or the bread from heaven is opened up to us in the discourse of John 6 where Jesus talks about Moses gave you manna, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, meaning himself. This is the, the setting or the stage, then, in our passage of Scripture, the context approaching the feast of the Passover. Jesus would have been aware of all of this because he knew about the plan of God he himself was to be and had in eternity past become the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. So he sets the stage to refer to himself as the bread of life. And you can imagine as he looks over this great crowd of people, could have been looking through the eyes of Yahweh in him. Over, and thinking about how God, in his mighty power, had catered for all the needs of that people in all of their weakness, bringing them out of bondage and bringing them to a promised land. He's the same God, folks. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the God that is here in the mystery of the indwelling Holy Spirit, in the church, a miracle 
working God. Hallelujah. Great multitude followed him. Well, loaves and fishes. They saw the miracles that he had wrought on the diseased, King James Version says. A great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he had performed on those who were diseased. Can I take my jacket off, please? Excuse me, it's very warm up here. I'm the same person. I've just taken my jacket off, that's all. New Geneva Study Bible says a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed. They saw the signs which he had performed. So, you know, when you look at a sign, most signs are pretty dead, aren't they? They're just stuck in the ground and pointing somewhere. Unless you've got some of these rather lit up psychedelic signs that we have on highways today, you know, with flashing lights and Oh, you've got one down our end towards Grimsby, which says only essential travel. And I said, we're essential. (laughs) You know, because the signs that Jesus performed were not still signs. They weren't still birth. They were active. They saw the signs which he performed. God then is an active God at work. Father working through the Son. And they saw the works. So it wasn't just a sign pointed to who he was. That's true. But the very works themselves demonstrated who he was. He was a reason for Such a crowd of followers, they had seen Jesus working, not merely observed the resultant sign. I've mentioned that Jesus would have gone off then for solitary refreshment on hearing of John's death, took boat, and retired to a quiet place. This probably synchronizes, I think, with this account. Hearing recently of John's death, And he wants to avoid immediate conflict because, you know, the religious leaders were always at him. So the previous chapter shows that he, chapter five. So he wanted to avoid immediate conflict and he would want to reflect and find time for prayer and contact with the presence and the power of God. It was also necessary to get his disciples into the place where he might lead them into a deep understanding of himself. He had special time for the twelve and would have taken them with him. Now, from Capernaum to Bethsaida is about four miles across Lake Galilee. I mean, this is recorded in the scriptures. I, I I think imperial, not metric, so those of you that are doing the math on the kilometers there, but towards the end of the account that we're in today, they rode three and a half miles, the guys, the disciples. So it's about four miles across at that point from Capernaum to Bethsaida. The watching people would have seen Jesus with his disciples get on their ferry, fisher boat, and go over the four-mile stretch. 
<laughs> they would have watched and they would have thought, mm, and they wanted to get after him. So the watching people saw the direction, made their way on foot around the coast to the north side, a distance of about nine miles plus. Quite a long way to walk if you've got no refreshment with you and if you've got family and if you've ever been in the east, in an eastern context, you know, they'd be carrying their blankets and children on their backs and like that and maybe unprepared for a long stretch with nothing, no refreshment. So they would have made their way about nine miles Jesus would have gone into the hillside, I expect, because it says later that he went back to the hill. So he would have gone up on the hillside with his disciples and would see this great crowd coming. I just want you to picture that, all these people coming, you know, um, to get and receive whatever it was that he was going to do next. They come across to a small plain called El Batayar, a great green picnic site. Great place where I have a picnic. Bit of paraphrase there, of course. But they would have come into that area, and Christ would have seen from the hillside the crowd coming. And joining them, he would have seen, possibly, the pilgrims that were making their way to Passover. Because it was near. So there would have been many pilgrims on the way, carrying all their stuff, making their way towards the city for the Passover feast. And they, I suggest you, may have joined some of this crowd. So they all, and he sees them all coming up towards him. drove of pilgrims. Christ's compassion and sympathy at the sight of this tired and hungry multitude moves him to want to provide food. That is the heart of the creator God. That is the heart of the God that brought his people out of Egypt. When their shoes didn't wear out and they didn't have to go to Marks and Spencer's to get a new pair of trousers or a suit. The Bible says God supplied them and they didn't need to get new footwear. And he fed them with manna from heaven. So it's the same. Christ would have seen all these people coming. And his heart was moved towards them with compassion. It wasn't just that he wanted to do a sign <laughs> to prove who he was. That wasn't the motive. The motive was he was moved to want to provide for them. And looking around, he, you know the test question. He says to Philip, who is a native of Bethsaida. You will find that in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, around about verse 40 or 41. That was his, that was his area of, of habitation. And he was a working man. He was a fisherman. So I just put a little heading here. The work and earning principle. Because here we get a little bit of insight into, you know, labor, the price of food, and we got a working man's perspective. He was a local man. I don't know, there probably wouldn't have been a Costco's in the area to go and get stacked up with all sorts of food. Maybe all the little bazaars were closed. I'm just paraphrasing a little bit. 
But he said, where are we going to buy food that all these may eat? How are we going to supply? You know, I mean, Philip was a working guy, fisherman, used to going out early and work. And we can't help thinking a little bit about the context of the working man today. How is he going to provide for his family? How much is it going to cost? What stores are open? Where can I go? Food is a big, is a daily issue, folks. One thing you've got to do is get food, even if you have to go in and drive in and they throw it through the window as a drive past. You know? But everybody's got to eat. Natural desire of the natural man. And Philip knew what it was to have to go out and earn his keep. And Jesus gave him a test question. But he knew what he was going to do all the time, didn't he? It says in the same verse, Jesus knew what he was going to do all the time. I wonder where he got that inside information from. What was the plan? What he was going to do? He only did what he saw his father doing, didn't he? He, I think, in the fellowship of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son, they had a plan. Philip said, well, according to his assessment, eight months' wages in the NIV translation, 200 denarii in the New King James Version, or seven pounds sterling, if you want to go into Barclays Study Bible, seven pounds sterling worth of bread is not enough. That was a lot of money at that time. Seven sterling pounds, UK pounds. I don't know what it would have been in Canadian dollars. But it was a lot of money. A denarius was a day's a laborer's daily pay, roughly. So you can do the maths if you want. But that was quite a lot of money. And to a working man, you know, to say, well, that's seven or eight months' wages isn't going to be enough to feed all these people. I know in the East, but having been in Asia and seen, you know, the laborers stand in the marketplace at the beginning of the day, these, uh, the context, you know, in the Eastern uh, part of the world they stand in the, till, the, till the master come and hires them and they get paid on a daily basis hundred, maybe a hundred Pakistani rupees if they do a day's work at the beginning of the day and, and those that weren't hired didn't get anything to eat that day but a denarius was about a day's work for feed your family for you know This was a test question for Philip, but the Lord knew what he was going to do because he already had in his mind. Is that some revelation from his Father by the Holy Spirit? What is a miracle, the meaning of a miracle anyway? Well, we know that the God of creation created it all in the beginning, and we're not deists in our thinking that, you know, uh, well, the, the, the planet is wound up like a clock, the maker just wound it all up, and when the spring wound down, then it all finishes. Boom! End. You know, the spring has wound down. That he's not uninterested, but that he's actually got his hand upon the creation, watching over it. He created it all in the beginning. It's not difficult for him then just to come in and make some adjustments in our journey, is it? He who put the fish in the sea and the corn in the fields 
and the birds in the air. He who can make fish swim into a net. <laughs> when the fishes filled the nets, when they, uh, you know, when they were fishing, and he said, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Well, did he create the fish, or did he make them come? Well, it doesn't tell us. But the fish arrived where he wanted them to arrive at the time they were to get there. So the creator, God, knows how to operate within his own laws. He doesn't break his own laws, he operates within them. He restores within the laws, we call them the laws of nature. But God set it all in motion and, and, and the laws there. A marvelous event, it says in the concise Bible commentary, a miracle is a marvelous event exceeding the known powers of nature and therefore supposed to be due to a special intervention of deity. Another rendering, a suspension or adjustment of the laws of nature by him who implemented the laws in the beginning. Now, we're living in an age, you know, in which people live, and in every age, people are affected by their viewpoint and pattern of thought in every dispensation. In our century, the word uh, miracle is often taken to mean an act contrary to nature. Well, I think we see miracles all the time, don't you? Sun came up this morning, and it goes on its course, according to Psalm 19. He's upholding all things by the word of his power. Ah, oh, maybe God tweaks it a little bit that we don't see so that the planet stays on its axis. It stays in its correct geometric, geometrical position so we don't all fry if we get too near the sun or we don't all freeze if it tips too far. You know what I mean. God is in control. There have been many attempts, though, to redefine and make the word miracle palatable to modern taste, usually pandering to rationalism. But let's not forget that our God is actually a spiritual, supernatural being. And the new birth is a supernatural act of God, the Holy Spirit. When we're born of God, it's a supernatural act of God in your heart and life. Scripture represents God as the power behind the phenomena, not just the occasional inexplicable happening. The Bible never alludes to these wonders upsetting the natural order, but on the contrary, establishing it. The Bible speaks as if God does everything and is in everything. Of him and through him and to him are all things. Not a sparrow falls from the housetop without your father. Watching over the seasons which he instituted, so that we get springtime, sowing, watering, harvest, winter. So the Lord is the maker of all creation. By the way, and it is only a by the way, it's a footnote really, the working of miracles is mentioned in the early church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as a work of the Holy Spirit. called the working of powers of God. It mentions differences of working and operations. That's another subject. But dare we believe that that is 
in the body of Christ in our day. That God can still do these dynamic things for us in the difficulties of life. What is the quality of a miracle? If we could talk about the quality of a miracle, not merely a sign, this work of Christ that we see in John chapter 6 and is recorded in all of the Gospels was not to do with healing those who were diseased or sick. Presumably, though, with all of the needs that were coming, hidden in that crowd, which only God would know, not recorded for us. I mean, maybe there was a 90-year-old or an 88-year-old there that was suffering from some unknown disease or some virus that had been... We don't know. doesn't say. But it was... Presumably, the possibility was there that there would be those who would get sick if they were not nourished by Jesus. You can't have a crowd of 5,000 and not have somebody that's not got a stomachache or a bit of blood pressure or a migraine. They weren't all fit people, even though they'd walk nine miles. Most doctors would say they must have been pretty fit by then. But let's assume that amongst them, their need was met when Jesus multiplied loaves, barley loaves and fishes. It was for these great crowds of hungering humanity that the great creator God of the fields and the sea, of corn and barley and fishes, who put them there in the sea in the beginning, who created the, dark, the darkness and the light, fed 5,000 plus families, fed on five barley loaves and two small fishes. Creative power was, I would say, called and clearly exercised. Creative power. Food was called into existence that before did not exist. Did you know that Muller in Bristol, the orphanages in Bristol in the UK, fed orphan children? Anybody read the story of George Muller? They used to pray and say grace every day over empty tables. 200, 300 children waiting for breakfast. There was nothing in the pantry. No food. Nothing to feed them on. And you can read it in the account of George Muller. God has spoken to him to open up the or an orphanage. You can still see the buildings there today in Bristol. They would pray in the refectory with all the children sitting there and say grace over empty tables. And then the vehicles would come driving into the drive, the carriages, bringing bread from the local bakery that they'd got left over. And meat and steaks and cereals and things... And the answer to prayer drove up the front drive and all the children were tapping their plates and the food was brought in the doors for them to eat. You can read it. God is still in that sort of business. That was answered prayer. I remember a small miracle, folks. There's no such thing as big and small miracles, I suppose. I mean, miracles are all sizes, aren't they? They're happening all the time, but 
I remember one time, Helen will recall it, when we got nothing to eat, and the kids were all hungry, and we thought, well, what are we going to give them? So we prayed. Oh, we need, Father, provide for us today. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a bang on the door, front door. I think it was Ben that came to the door with me. We went to the front door, and there's a 54-pound sack of potatoes standing on the doorstep. I remember Ben saying to me, Dad, he said, there's nobody there. Did an angel bring this sack of potatoes? He was five. You may not believe it. I don't know where the potatoes came from to this day. I mean, for all I know, God could have made a sack of potatoes and just dropped them there. If somebody delivered them, there was nobody there. That's a testimony of a... Of Food supplied from a father who cares. See? And now I could tell you other stories, but I don't want to bore you with too much of those. So the, the quality of miracle, if there is such a thing, is, is, is wonderful when, we, when it becomes so personal. God often answers prayer in supernatural ways. God can call into being that which was not before. <laughs> and, and call it out of nothing. I mean, he told Abraham to look at the stars, and he said, you're going to have your children will be like that. Welcome, folks. Children of Abraham. We're part of that. You see, not only can he mend the broken, heal the sick, but the Lord is able to save to the uttermost. And meet the deepest needs... Build up that which is ruined. Bring strength to the weak. But he can do greater. He can call into being that which was not before. Well, let's uh, look at our time. Mm. You look at the participant in this miracle course. There was Philip, who we know, uh, you know, Philip was... A little bit sort of unbelieving, I guess. His assessment was a little bit natural. He says, nothing, we can't do anything. Andrew, on the other hand, uh, arrives. And we see as Andrew, as his habit is, as you see in the early chapters of the Gospel of John, Andrew's habit is to bring people. He was a bringer. We need bringers in the church, don't we? We need people who will bring people to Jesus. And uh, he brought this little boy. He said, hey, Lord, there's a lad here. He's got five small barley loaves and two small fishes. Well, barley loaves, you know, barley was regarded as the lowest of the, of the uh, crops. Did you know that? In the Jewish mind, corn and wheat was one thing, but barley was the poor man's, uh, really was the poor man's offering. Barley was often given to the animals to feed them. So this was a poor offering, but it was the best the, best the boy had. Barley, by the way, was also provided in the um, sin offering of a sinful person. Usually an adulterous woman, according to Jewish law, would, as part of her sin offering, the meal would be of barley. So this is um, held a little bit in contempt by most people. Just barley bread, you know. 
cheapest loaves to the low. Though this boy was there with his barley loaves. Uh, think what would have been omitted, though, from history if the boy had refused to come. Or if he withheld what he had. We, we don't know. We may not have much to bring ourselves, but he needs what we have. And actually, he needs who we are. There is no saying what Christ could do with us and through us. There was an old German schoolmaster... The story goes, who, when he entered the class of boys in the morning, used to remove his cap and bow in a ceremonious way to the boys, the students in his class. In a ceremonious way, sort of in an honorable way towards them. One asked him one day why he did this. And he answered, you never know what one of these boys may someday become. He was right. The boy in this story, one of the boys, was Martin Luther. Think what would have been omitted from history if this boy hadn't brought what he had. The sacramental ingredient of the account, of course, what we see is when they're sitting on the ground, Jesus acts as a Jewish father would, takes the bread and blesses it with a Jewish grace that would have been seen in every home and prays the prayer over it. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, who causes to come forth bread from the earth. What a great thing this is. He who creates corn, calling forth bread from the earth. He who makes it grow, he who sustains it all calls forth bread. Oh, this little bit of barley placed in the hands of the master. You can't help but acknowledge the servant's participation of and in the miracle in their hands. Isn't it a wonderful thing to participate with God in what he's doing? Hello. We are participators, co-workers, every time we play the guitar for Jesus. Or every time we set it, we are workers with God. And we're dealing with a divine, supernatural God of power. They participated with him. The people ate and were filled according to verses 26 and 27 of the same chapter, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. But then he said, Do not labor, verses 26, 27, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give to you, because God the Father has put his seal on him. So there's a sacramental aspect, I believe, of Jesus considering the cross, his resurrection, but prior to that, breaking bread with his disciples at that last Passover meal, which becomes the covenant meal of the New Testament, when he breaks bread with his disciples and he could, he could see it all coming. 
And so here is a sacramental aspect, I believe. Yes, it was natural filling, but there is an aspect in which we're satisfied with what Christ gives us through the sacraments that he has birthed through his own life. The word filled is a Greek word, chorta zestai, meaning sated, fed to repletion, satisfied. And I say it reverently, we could say, I feel stuffed. Full, satisfied. And this is what they felt when he'd fed them. Perhaps we can catch a glimpse then of the sacramental aspect. The setting is as he goes on to explain about the manna from heaven and the feeding of the multitude. And Moses gave you manna, but he said, my father is giving you the true bread, meaning himself. I am the bread of God, he said. The fellowship of that gathered community, sharing together on the ground. What a great encouragement to body ministry today. Participation eating together. And then, of course, there was a sufficiency in it all. Isn't the gospel sufficient? Tells us that the gospel is the power of God. And isn't it stupid to think that uh, small donut-sized barley bits of bread plus two small sardines can feed all those people? Just as stupid as it seems that a man hanging on a tree could be both the wisdom and the power of God and be sufficient to save people. God delights in taking that which looks foolish, small, irrelevant. And he takes his own son and allows him to be crucified. Foolishness to those which perish, but to those which are saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God. And no doubt, they must have thought, well, that was, I don't know how he did that, but that was certainly wisdom and power. Reason and sense may say that some poor sinner is too far gone. Some too old to get saved. Some relative that seems so hard. But this miracle is no doubt meant to teach the adequacy of the gospel. That God is able to save. Faith replies, our master can create as well as renew. A saviour who by his spirit can create a new heart. For with God, nothing is impossible. Loaves and fishes. Loaves, speaking of pastoral ministry, those that feed. Fishes, I'm speaking about the church today, of course. Those that catch evangelistic ministry. Loaves and fishes, what a wonderful picture of the gospel in action, feeding and gathering, feeding and f catching for God. And for those that labor in some way, your needs will be met. Twelve baskets left over. Not eleven, not thirteen. Precisely twelve. Twelve disciples, well, that seems to fit. Basket each to take home for the family. God is no man's debtor. The labor is worthy of his hire. And the gospel is sufficient to meet the needs of those that work for Christ. So we have to feed on Christ crucified, the true bread of life. And know the atonement made by his death. He is our Passover lamb. And the return journey, well, they got a hold of him. They saw this marvelous thing and they said, let's make him a king. 
Let's make him a king right now. And, and, you know, we can get out from under this persecution. I mean, the state is giving us a real hard time, Rome. But let's get out from under it all. Let's make him a king and let, let's do it now. And it's reminiscent, isn't it? It was a great temptation to Christ, I think. You may think, well, was it? Well, don't forget he'd been tempted in the wilderness earlier, the start of his ministry, when the arch enemy came to him in another wilderness situation and tempted him, said, I'll make you a king now. Turn these stones into bread. Do a miracle like that. That was a tempting miracle. Not just feed yourself, but maybe make enough so you can make a big show of it. So it's reminiscent of a great temptation, but thank God for humility. The Son of Man was hungry and weary at those times, and no doubt there were many times in his humanity when he felt that, and could have demonstrated his miraculous abilities for selfish ends, and even accept an early coronation into throne and kingdom. But he refused to do it because he was a loaves and fishes man, a foolish, weak, surrendered man to the cross. We see Christ's humility in it, and it's demonstrated through his life in, his, in the way he borrowed things. Nothing that he claimed was his own. But he slips away into the hills alone and the evening wears on. The disciples are in the boat and I'm gathering up folks right now. Thank you for your patience. They're rowing away. I mean, it's four miles back, isn't it? No motor. Well, if the wind, the wind does come up, it says a storm came up, the wind came up, but it couldn't have been in the right direction because they were having to row. Maybe it was a headwind. Anybody feel like they're in a headwind today? The tide's against you. Most of us. Humility are steps towards heaven and honor. The disciples' trials as they pass over. Can't help thinking they must have thought, you know, what a great meeting we had. What great crowds came. What great preaching. What wonderful things God did. Well, suddenly a transition from that into their sweat and labor that we've got now. Where's Jesus right now? On Monday or Tuesday? Or middle of the week? Whenever is your bad day? Where is he? Well, he's coming to you folks. (laughs) He waits for three and a half miles, by the way, if you read it. He watches them. The disciples' trials as they pass over seems a strange transition in such a storm, but trial is part of the diet for the Christian. He watches. Doesn't make things too easy. (laughs) You can't help seeing a bit of humorous side in it, can you? Come on, Andrew. Come on, Philip. You didn't believe. Pull a bit harder. (laughs) He watches our struggles as we pull on the oars, as we fight and win our own battles. He watches as a parent watches over a son or daughter in an athletic competition to see whether they're going to win. And when strength is failing, after some three miles plus, when life seems too much, he comes walking on the water. (laughs) I'm going to give him a hand right now. Now, Margaret Avery tells a story. I promise you I'm gathering up right now. We come to the communion table. 
She tells a story about a teacher in the small country school and she tells it from John chapter 6 about the multiplication miracle of the bread. And she's time to take the kids home. There was a windy snow blizzard. These were not the days of vehicles and cars, by the way. These were the days usually of carriages and things like that. But she's taking the children home on foot. Got about eight or nine of them and she's dropping them off on the way. Little village, little country town. And she's got about three of them left and the snow is really pouring in, just like it does in Canada. Praise God for snow. I love Canada. Pulling them through the drifts, almost worn out and tired with it, exhausted with the struggle, she overhears one of the little boys that she's still got. There's only two of them, one little boy. And he says, almost half to himself, we could be doing with that chap called Jesus right now. Jesus comes walking on the sea to meet them. Not a spirit or a ghost. Not a docet, docetic. Not, this is not docet. He's not a spirit. Docetism. He guards us against that thought. Well, it's all so up there somewhere. No, he's walking as a man on the water to them. They are nearing the end of the journey. As soon as they receive him in the boat. The Bible says as soon as they receive him in the boat immediately they were at the shore to which they were going. Isn't that a marvellous thing? When we let Jesus in the circumstance, suddenly we find the answer comes. I don't know whether the timing of Jesus' arrival or a miracle of transit happened here, whether it was the timing of his arrival, it was only about a half a mile left, or whether it was a miracle of transit but when Jesus got into the boat, they were home. As it says in Psalm 107, verse 30, in the time of testing in the storm and the sea, he brought them into their desired haven. And he brings us safely home, and he will bring us home. Whatever's going on. Safely home, Christ the Savior, the Christ of miracles is with us. He will bring us safely through. At this time then of thinking about the bread, let's come to the communion table and eat of heavenly bread together now.